every one of us, we all carry secrets and we all have shame. We all have parts of ourselves that we feel are aberrant. And I mean, they're not. We wear an outside mask. We wear a shiny, hard carapace. And our real stuff has gone on behind it. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rectum Kobo. We sell ebooks and audiobooks. We make e-readers and apps, and we build technology and experiences that help people spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work we do is that we get to talk to authors about their books, as well as the books that shape them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Kobo and Conversation. My guest today is Marion Keyes. She's the author of over a dozen novels and several works of nonfiction, including journalism and a cookbook. She won the Irish Book Award for Popular Fiction in 2009 for her novel The Charming Man, and in 2016 she won the Irish Book Award for Popular Nonfiction for her collection Making It Up As I Go Along. Her writing is funny, humane, and deeply interested in the relationships that bind families together and pick at their seams. Her latest book is the novel Grown Ups. It's a story of a blended family with three brothers, Ed Casey, Liam Casey, and Johnny Casey at the center. We get to know them, their wives, their exes, their children through a series of worryingly expensive family gatherings. As we learn about this cast of characters and their relationships to one another, we learn about their own private relationships to money, career, parents, and parenting, and everything we think about when we consider ourselves as grown-ups. Marion Keys. Welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm delighted. First, tell me how your time of COVID-induced isolation has been going. You know, it's been fine, really. I'm very much an introvert at the best of times. And I mean, I think writers are used to solitary existences. And the beginning was kind of weird, but now I'm at the stage where I feel almost institutionalized. You know, I'm quite happy to stay here. And actually, things are sort of getting back to normal here in Ireland. And uh, I'm a little bit anxious about having to leave the house. You know, it's been pretty much OK. I've been a lot luckier than a lot of people. And this seems to be a theme that I'm hearing a lot from the authors that we've uh, that we've been interviewing of, you know, finally the rest of the world gets to know what my world is like. You know, I'm at home, I'm on, that's where all of the work happens. That's where everything takes place. Yeah. And I mean, I could go like two or three days without seeing anyone other than my husband in the normal times. Um, So it hasn't been that different, really. I, I miss my family. I'm very close to my family and several of them live very near me. And I really miss, you know, hugging my mother and my nieces. But, you know, really... I have to say, if I was a party animal, this would have been awful. But luckily, I'm not. So it's been fine. <laughs> and I think it's especially hard for the tactile people. It's not just you know, if you are, if you're a conversationalist, if you're, you know, if you're sort of someone who, uh, who likes getting on the phone and chatting with people, then it's fine. But if you are the, you know, if you're the hugging type, it's been, you know, it's been hard. Yeah. It's been cruel. Like, it really has. Yeah, and I have a, a niece who's almost three, and she's just the most squishy little ball of yum. And, you know, I itch, even as I'm talking to you, my hands are sort of forming themselves into claws just from the knees, need to squeeze her. Like, that's all very difficult. But I suppose in the, in the aim of keeping well, it's, it's been worth doing. But, you know, did we ever really think we would live through something like this? It's been unprecedented, like really like something out of a movie. It is. And I think it's been interesting for people as they as they look at their work and how they work. It's certainly been interesting for us as booksellers to look at how people read and the way that some people turn hard towards books and reading when things get difficult and some people turn away from it just as fast. So it's uh, it's been a bit of a crucible. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were unable to concentrate in the beginning. Even I was, and I read a huge amount. And it's simply because we were in a state of fight or flight. And when you're in that state, your imagination sort of gets deactivated. You can't afford an imagination when you're in crisis. And I think the further lockdown went on, the more people's fears eased and then they were able to read. And I mean, books for me have been an absolute godsend through all of this. So how has it been for you as a writer, as you're going through that feeling of fight or flight, does that make it easier or harder for you to get into your work? 
I, it's definitely been harder, Michael. And I've checked in with a lot of other writers and we all had the same thing of like, just our heads weren't working in the same way. And it was that feeling that like, the imagination had just shut up shop and it was easier to do sort of structural work on the novel that I'm writing, but kind of trying to invent new characters or trying to get to know ones that I had already created was next to impossible. And that was, it's a frightening feeling. The thing that you feel that you can rely upon yourself best to do just doesn't show up. And once it was explained to me that this that there's a sort of a basic biological reason for why my imagination wasn't working. It did make it less frightening. But even now, it's a lot slower than, you know, progress would normally be. And it's so funny. So many people have felt like so bad that they haven't learned to play the flute or they haven't learned conversational Korean or whatever. But somebody did say to me, we are living through a global pandemic. We needn't expect our work ethic to be the way it normally would. You know, we do have to cut ourselves some slack. And that was a comfort hearing that. And so for you as a writer in normal times, can you tell me a bit about how a book starts for you? You know, is it, does it begin with story? Does it begin with character? Character. Yeah, it always starts. I mean, I suppose I'm really interested in the complexity of human beings. And my books are really I write about emotional landscapes and I usually write about women. And yeah, it usually starts with one particular woman and maybe a situation or an issue that she's kind of dealing with. And then I construct her world around her, both internally and externally. And I'm very slow compared to an awful lot of authors that I'm, you know, in the same sort of category as. And the reason I'm so slow is because I take forever, you know, to finally get to know my characters. And I suppose I'm just lucky in that my publishers do give me that time. So plot is always sort of secondary, really. I mean, of course, plot is vital. But I think if your characters are created deftly enough or, or with enough nuance, that they will, I mean, that thing about like characters deciding what they're going to do themselves, I'm afraid it is codswallop, like I wish it was true. But if they're created well enough, they will sort of indicate a little bit how they want their journey to go. Grown Ups had a mental subtitle for me of adult worries I have known. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's characters struggle with weight and money and parents step-parents, children and stepchildren, careers or lack thereof, but it's all barely concealed under this veneer of family togetherness. Can we talk about a couple of the characters? Can you, can you introduce us? Of course, I'd love to. Thank you. So let's talk about three of the men and three of the women. We can, sure. We can sort of go as long or as short as you like. Talk to me about the brothers that kind of set up the nucleus of this family. Okay. Well, Johnny is the oldest of the Casey brothers. And he is, I mean, in a way I felt the most sort of compassion for him. He's he's attractive. He's good looking. He's charming. People like him. And he feels like a fraud. He feels, I mean, he never really got his dad's approval. His dad is a solicitor, um, a lawyer in a small town. And the dad had hoped that Johnny would take, you know, follow on in his footsteps and to um, be in the family business. And Johnny didn't want to do it. He knew he would kind of, when he thought of doing that for the rest of his life, he felt like bricks were being piled on his chest. And he fell in love with Jessie and his best friend also fell in love with her. And the, the best friend got her. And eventually Johnny got her, but he has always felt, again, second best for her. And he is stepfather to her two oldest children. And the son in that relationship has never really accepted him. So he is full of conflict, really, in that he presents this kind of this shiny, glossy veneer of like Mr. Charming, Mr. Mr. Alpha, really. And just barely underneath that, as you say, he feels inadequate and like, you know, he has imposter syndrome. And um, I felt so bad for him because I think he has really suffered from the template that we force so many men into, you know, that you have to be the alpha, you have to be the breadwinner and you can never show weakness. 
And he has so much weakness that he just wants comfort for. I'm very, very fond of him. So that's number one. Yes. <laughs> then Ed is the middle brother and he's an entirely different character. And, you know, so many of us, you know, it's nature rather than nurture. And like Ed just came out of the womb, an independent person. And he has been a loner in one of the ways that um, I think we would all aspire to be a loner, that he doesn't feel lonely and he doesn't. Well, he didn't until he met his wife. He didn't really need other people. And he realized very early on that like his dad was never going to approve of any of his children. So Ed just detached, whereas and he could see what Johnny was doing. He could see that Johnny was sort of, you know, jumping through hoops and performing circus tricks just to try and get any kind of a nod of approval from their dad. And Ed just thought, I'm doing me. I'll be me. And he is quite mildly eccentric, I suppose. You know, he um, he doesn't care about what you want from him like he's a kind person but like he doesn't like he doesn't spend money on new clothes he loves his job he's a botanist it's never going to make him tons of money and he absolutely doesn't care where i think especially you know in, in the western world people are sort of aghast when uh, a person decides i love my job and i'm not doing it for the money they're all a bit kind of no but really is there any way we can monetize this in a better way. How can you opt out? This is what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. And Ed is like, you know, this is who I am. And and he's quite stubborn. You know, he's very easy going so long as you're kind of, so long as he agrees with what you're doing. And then you get to a certain point and Ed is just, he will not budge. But again, he's very tender to his wife. You know, when he loves people, he loves them enormously. You see, I love almost everybody that I've written in this book. However, this brings me to the third and youngest brother. Yeah, Liam. Liam is a different kind of person. Liam, again, didn't get the approval from his dad, but he had a talent. He was a really gifted athlete. He was a very, very good runner. And um, his success came to him young, which meant that he never really had to grow up. And around the time that he started, you know, losing matches, Somebody else rescued him. A woman came along, had plenty of money. They got married. They're living a different life now. He has two children and he keeps waiting to, I don't know, to feel secure in his new life. And, but because he wasn't getting the endorsement that he was used to, you know, because his ego wasn't getting fed the way it did when he was a winner, the marriage didn't last. And at the start of the book, which is when we meet him, um, he has he's working in a bicycle shop. He's a cyclist now, you know, for, as a hobby. And he has met a woman who is a good deal younger than him um, and a lot more naive. And she thinks he's amazing. And he likes that she thinks he's amazing. And her approval, her admiration for him is, is keeping him stuck, is keeping him stuck at the age of 17 although he's 40 now. And so to pair with these three complicated men sort of stuck in various stages in their lives, let's look at three equally complicated partners, Jesse and Nell and Kara, and tell me how they connect with these people and how they stand on their own as individuals. Well, Jesse is a very interesting person because she is the girl who at school kind of didn't really have any friends. She was the person who gave people lifts in her car. You know, she was the one who did all the, the planning and the taking care of people. And she has always suspected that nobody really likes her. But she's very clever and she's very hardworking. And she has set up a business importing exotic spices, you know, exotic groceries. And she has been very successful. And she has... Well, lots of money by some people's standards, but she spends a huge amount as well. Um, also, she is an only child and both her parents were very, they were in their 40s when they had her. So she adores Johnny's brothers, their wives, their kids, and she likes to travel mob-handed. And she, as you said in the introduction, yeah, spends an awful lot of money kind of taking them away for fancy weekends or like a week in a villa in Italy or like all going to like um, an eco festival. And she 
loves doing it because like she loves having people around her, but she can't shake this feeling that she has to rent her friends. And I suppose Jessie's issue really is loneliness combined with, you know, living beyond her means, but keeping so many like plates in the air spinning that she kind of stays one head, one step ahead of, you know, the bank ringing her. Again, you see, I feel very affectionate towards her because I like I really relate to the whole thing of family. Like um, I don't have kids of my own, um, but three of my siblings do. And I very much like spending time with them. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm not above like luring them over to me with like offers of pizza and Prosecco. Um, so, you know, there are parts of me that really does feel for her. The woman who is married to Ed, Ed, who is the independent brother, her name is Cara, and I mean, Cara's identifying feature, I suppose, really, is that she has bulimia. She had it when she was in her early 20s, and I suppose it went into abeyance because I suppose, you know, she never did any work on it, and in my experience, addictions don't, don't just disappear. And then around the time that the book starts, it suddenly, you know, explodes back into her life. and. You know, it was important for me writing Cara that she was more than just her eating disorder. But she's a kind person. She's a regular mom. She's got two boys. She absolutely adores them. She works in a very attractive boutique hotel. And, you know, she really cares about making sure that people enjoy themselves. Yeah, And she has been very, very good at her job until now. But her bulimia just goes into, like, turbo. And she finds that her addiction is interfering with her ability to do her job. And this is very much not who she is, but it's who she's becoming. And that's, I mean, that's something that she just goes into denial about until, until she no longer can. Then the third woman is Nell and she's only 30. And I tried to get like, um, you know, a, a range of ages in the book and she's my, my youngest woman. And she's, I suppose she's a card carrying millennial in that she is really worried about the planet. She has, you know, she doesn't have a bank account. She works as a set designer and the things that she gets pleasure from, you know, her job, if she does it well, or experiences rather than stuff. Although she does find it hard. Like again, she doesn't buy new clothes. She buys them from thrift stores and she knows that some people can be irritated by her sort of her worthiness. And, you know, she even irritates herself sometimes, but she, I mean, she has ideals and ethics and this is how she wants to live. And she has recently got married to Liam. And at the start of the book, they're still in that, like, you know, the rosy glow, but they are very, very different people. And I don't know how, how long it can be sustained, but, you know, I really wanted to represent younger people and you know the things that they that they worry about and um, I have a 20 year old niece and so much of her you know she's a really good good person so much of her inspired Nell because I'm closer to Jessie's age and I just think that there is this sort of divide I mean there's always been a generational divide but I think it's more pronounced at the moment and that younger people really are worried about what my generation have done with the planet. And it was good to kind of put all these characters in one big mixing bowl and see see how they meshed with each other. And it does seem like you've set all of these individual forces in motion. Each person has their own things they're worried about, their own set of underlying tensions. And then it all connects together into this web of family love combined with family resentment and tensions between different siblings and between children and stepchildren. And it's all simmering below the surface. And then it's with Kara where the dam breaks. She hits her head and her filter, the filter that we all use to hold in our inside voice, comes off <laughs> and becomes her outside voice. And you put it right up front in the first chapter. So we all know it's coming. Yeah. So when she finally does let loose, 
Tell me a bit about that first event where all of a sudden things come flooding out. Yeah, you see, I mean, I feel with every one of us, we all carry secrets and we all have shame. We all have parts of ourselves that we feel are aberrant. And I mean, they're not. You know, we we wear an outside mask. We wear a shiny, hard carapace. And our real stuff has gone on behind it. And I especially think in any family or any group of friends or, or work colleagues or whatever, there's a certain amount of yourself that you cannot express if you want to want relations to remain harmonious. But like, again, in any close knit group of people, you're going to like some people more than you like others. You're going to have strange, you know, ridiculous resentments against people that you can't even explain. Or you're going to have long held grudges or you're, yeah, you're going to have a particular soft spot for somebody that you really feel that might be a bit worrying. So everyone, every character in this book has their, their stuff, you know, and I think everybody feels their own family is dysfunctional. But like my experience is like, all families are dysfunctional. And I actually know somebody who got concussion. I worked with her and she, her personality was suddenly so different. She was quite surly and bad tempered. And then she was saying stuff. And, you know, we were all kind of giving each other the eye and thinking, did she just say that? And is she all right? And, you know, she had got concussion and it was very interesting to me. So at the start of the book, Everyone is at a birthday party for Johnny and Cara bangs her head, gets concussion, comes in, says something that she shouldn't and it causes mild mayhem. But then in order to save themselves, people start throwing each other under the bus because they all know stuff about each other. Because again, that's impossible to avoid in any you know tight-knit group of people. And so this is at the start of the book where you know stuff has emerged, like damning stuff, but the reader doesn't know exactly what those things are. And then the book starts properly six months ago. And, you know, we follow the family six months, five months, four months, three months, you know, until we get once again to this fateful dinner. And obviously the fallout is is destructive, but not entirely destructive. I mean, some of the things that emerge are, they're better off being spoken about. And that was kind of what I was wondering about with this is when she finally does let loose, how does that feel for you? Is it disaster or is it catharsis? Mm. Is it blowing up or letting go? It's a mix. I mean, I, I am really not comfortable with confrontation. I mean, so few of us are. And those of those who are comfortable with confrontation are a little bit too comfortable, I think. It's really difficult to find that balance where you tell your truth to somebody without hurting them or without insulting them or without soft playing it. I mean, I think secrets are better out than not if something positive can come of it. I mean, if it's going to be something like the way you eat an apple drives me insane and I want to bury an axe in your head every time I hear you doing it. That is really not helpful, you know, because a person should be able to eat the apple whatever way they want. But if it's, you know, you always arrive 15 minutes late and I find that really hurtful because I've cooked the bloody blah, you know, stuff like that is okay to say. If something positive can come from it, it is better. But is, you know, there's no doubt that it's it's frightening. It's frightening because, I mean, my fear is always that they, that they would be angry with me and that they, they won't love me anymore. You know, if I say, would you mind not doing X? But like, if the resentment is kind of clouding out every single thing, every good thing in a relationship, mm-hmm. it's worth having that talk. In your earlier books, like Rachel's Holiday, you talk about the, the stresses and forces that pull us around in our 20s. Each subsequent book, as your career has progressed and you've lived more of your own life, have the stresses that you deal with in your writing changed as well? Are you uncovering new themes as your own life progresses? Oh, like definitely, Michael. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like I've sort of grown up in public. Like I've been writing for 25 years and the things that kind of seemed to me to be huge and heartbreaking when I wrote my first book, Watermelon, they have really, I suppose, matured. And, you know, it comes back to the things that you spoke about earlier that like, I I suppose I I thought the greatest pain in any life would be caused by romantic love. And now I see that 
you know, siblings can hurt you and money can be a worry. I mean, and I'm not talking about shortage of money, but like a really, but like an unhealthy relationship with it as, as Jesse does. And other things like I thought that I would grow out of my issues with my parents, you know, like I thought everybody gets to a certain age and you're sort of on a level with them. You know, you don't need their approval anymore and you're sort of, you're great buddies with them and you know, you're sort of peers. And I am 56. And I am still looking for my mother's approval. And, you know, I can laugh at myself. And then I can, you know, it's pitiful. Like she told me earlier that she wanted a particular book. And like, I'm so grateful that she asked me for something. And all I want to do is like, I want to get in my car and I want to find it and I want to bring it over to her and I want to present it to her. And I want her to say, good girl, Marion. And like, that's pathetic. But if I feel like this at 56, I realize that other people must feel feel that way about their parents and yeah I mean and I don't have kids but I can see how the approval of one's children is also something I mean that I I would definitely be looking for you know because I'm like that with my nieces and nephews like I want them to think I'm the cool auntie Um, and I think it would be even worse if I was their parent because yeah I mean that need for love or to be told we approve of you. It's age old and it just never seems to go away in a particular life. Yeah. And things are more nuanced. Now. And like, you know, relationships with careers and success, that's probably more important to me now than it was all those years ago. You know, I suppose a lot more of myself is sort of invested in that than it used to be. And again, you know, this is not something I'm proud of. You know, it's not something I'm entirely comfortable talking about. But I feel like if I if I give those characteristics to the people in my books, it's something that I should be willing to address myself. So yeah, the things that worry, yeah, you know, the worries don't don't go away. Like they change and you get, you know, you get new worries as the old ones sort of fall away. You know, when I was a kid I really thought being grown up would mean having no worries whatsoever and nobody could tell me what to do I still have worries and like everybody still gets to tell me what to do and I suppose it's better for me and all of us I suppose to just accept that this is the human condition for as long as you're in relationships for as long as you love people you have to surrender control of so much of yourself as you've gone through your life and you've drawn up these themes you've kind of lived through them and then you've written about them can you see ahead can you look to those things that you're likely going to be wanting to bring up as themes when you're 65, when you're, when you're 70 years old, or do you have to live them first? Maybe not all of them. I mean, you know, looking ahead, I still worry about not so much mortality, really, but this is, you know, kind of failing. I mean, not even failing health, but the fact that like, both my knees are kind of dodgy, you know, and I have arthritis in my hands. And honestly, when I was younger, I just thought you could sort of decide not to have arthritis, that it was just like a question of will, you know, that those who had arthritis were just, they'd given in to it. I mean, I know that doesn't make any sense, but when you're young, you have different ideas. You think you can just decide not to get old. And now I think, oh, I see, I am going to be old. And, you know, my nieces are going to laugh at me, you know, for saying the current phrase is wrong and stuff like that. How irritated she gets at being patronized. So I think, I think I can sort of anticipate what it's going to be like and how, you know, my mother thinks, and she's probably right, that she knows more and she's wiser than all the rest of us put together. And yet, you know, we mock her for not understanding what the word woke means. Um, So I think if I pay attention, I can probably anticipate some of the things that will. And I suppose, yeah, one other thing is that as I get older, old age doesn't seem that old anymore. I thought 56 would mean that I was like, you know, the knitting needles, the, the, the comfy, comfy chair, the never leaving the house. And, and I still feel like an interested, connected human being. I still feel very like I count as part of the human race. And that's, that's not going to change, you know, when I'm 80, when I'm 90. You know, we always think, probably, that we are the most relevant person in the world. It's very, very hard for a human being to say, you know, I'm not really that important anymore because I'm old. And it's good that people don't feel like that because 
oldness doesn't make a person or illness doesn't make you any less human or any less important. One of the themes that has been showing up in your recent books is this this question of almost the elasticity of adulthood. Adults that haven't quite grown up, adults that have paused at a certain point in their maturity. Yeah. Are we all putting brakes on our own maturity as a way of holding that aging back? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, and I think we have good reason to. Like in many ways, like, I mean, our health is so much better than it has been for any human beings ever. And we're all living so much longer. And the book before Grown Ups was The Break. And it's about a couple who are happily married. They love each other. But because of our extended mortality, people who are 44, say, and they're married, they have been for, say, 15 years, and they have no intention of leaving their person. But like if they're looking at living to be like 100, they're looking at another 55 years of unbroken monogamy. And in the break, the husband decides that he can't do the unbroken bit. He needs six months off. And that, in one way, is a very immature thing to do. And in another way, it's maybe a very logical reaction to the fact that we are living so much longer. And you know that feeling of having kind of arrived and being mature? I think people will defer that for as long as their bodies are still able to do like physical activities. Um, and for as long as their bodies present as able, I think, yeah, I think we allow ourselves more flirtations and more and more kind of fantasies about falling in love again than I don't know maybe I'm talking complete nonsense you know maybe people always had those feelings you know when they hit 65 they would suddenly think oh my god I'm in love again and maybe I could run away and you know or maybe it's just the fact that people do live do feel younger and their bodies behave in a younger way I'm not really sure you have made an occasional detour into writing nonfiction. Can you tell me a bit about how those books fit into the arc of your writing career? Yeah, I mean, I have written, you know, on and off, I've written various columns for magazines and sometimes I've had a regular gig and sometimes it's been a one-off. I think they're probably a lot lighter than my novels and they're, they're always autobiographical. They're almost always comic. A lot of them are about travel that I've done. And some of them, I suppose, are about ways that I've tried to cure myself of the whole in my soul. And actually, I suppose writing about the whole in my soul in various ways is what I do in my novels. But definitely the, the non-fictions are, are lighter, they're funnier. You know, they're a lot less involving, I suppose. They, you know, they're books that you can pick up and put down. I don't think you can track how I've changed as a person as much through the nonfiction as you can in the fiction. We are all trapped at home. So for some reason, we are all baking. Yes. Can you tell me about Saved by Kate? I can indeed. Now, about 10 years ago, I suddenly arrived into the most horrific bout of appalling mental health. Like, it was described as a major depressive episode, but to me, it just felt like I was having a nervous breakdown. I just felt incredibly anxious and, and afraid all of the time. And I couldn't do anything. Like I couldn't write, I couldn't read. And I was really not, you know, I was never, had never been a baker. And out of the blue, I started baking cakes. A friend of mine, her birthday was in the February of 2010. And I said, Helen, I'm going to make you a cake. And she was a bit like, are you really now? Because, you know, I was not that person. And I started baking. And <laughs> yeah, and I mean, everybody was kind of, oh God, she really has gone mad, hasn't she? And I started baking and it was just the most joyous thing because my head and my heart were racing all the time to slow down and to do things like to dice butter or to sieve flour or to you know, to, to put mix into cupcakes and, and then kind of the whole miracle of like you put something into the oven and it looks like this and then it comes out like all glorious and delicious smelling and edible. And I know this sounds dramatic, but baking saved my life. 
in that it was the only thing that I could do. And it was the only thing that calmed me. And a lot of time through the following 18 months, I felt, and I'm really sorry if this upsets people, I felt suicidal an awful lot of the time. It really, the thoughts torment, tormented me, but I would make little bargains with myself and I'd say, come on, you know, we're going to make some pastry and we'll see how you feel at the end of the pastry. And always by the end, I would have canned. You know the thing about, I don't know if they say it in Canada, but they say it here in Ireland, they make fun of basket weavers, you know, when people have to go to psychiatric hospitals. And I never understood the connection, but it's like, it's, it's small, repetitive work with your hands that calms very distressed people. And that's what the baking did for me. And I mean, I know other people do knitting or crochet or painting or, you know, they're sort of things that kind of cut out the intellectual brain. And there's something very, very soothing about it and the way it shifted my focus. And like, so I, like I baked incessantly for 18 months. And initially I was, you know, the delight of my neighbors, you know, I would arrive with yet another load of, you know, red velvet cupcakes and they would be so happy. And then after I'd given the entire road type two diabetes, they weren't so happy with me anymore. And they used to pretend they weren't in when they would see me coming with my, with my, my tray of (laughs) cake. And then kind of as suddenly as it arrived, the need left me. And People ask me now and again if I'd make, you know, if I'd bake a cake for somebody's birthday and I can't anymore because the minute I start kind of looking at things like a sieve or the, or the beautiful tins I had, I start to remember how I felt like the absolute horror of that time, you know, and I can't go back to it. And like I joke and I say, like I get PTSD if I even look at a scales, but you know, it saved me at that time. And the book was Saved by Cake is sort of a thank you to baking, you know, for for how it helped me. But it's sort of, it's in my past now. Like I've moved on to, first of all, I was upcycling furniture and and then I, and now I paint pictures, you know, so kind of whatever gets you through. And I, you know, a lot of people have been baking through through the pandemic and I can absolutely understand the um, the comfort that they get from it. You have said as a writer that you don't know when you begin how your books will end. Can you talk to me a little bit about the process of starting and writing and ending for you? Okay, well, I mean, the character always comes first, my main character. And very often, I don't have much of a plot. Grown Ups was different in that I got the idea for the plot before I got any of the people. It's not usually like that, though. For me, the important thing is to create a truthful, believable, nuanced set of characters. And, you know, I usually have some idea, a vague idea of where it's going, but I've no real idea how I'm going to get there. And as I said, I take longer than other writers to write my books. And it means that I have the time to sort of go down some dead ends plot wise and, you know, and then to just eventually reverse it out and, and start again. This is the way it works for me. I mean, I have friends who are writers who know before they write the first line how what every chapter is going to contain. And that sort of shrivels my soul. Like, I like to be open to what the characters need, if that makes any sense. I mean, of course, like, it really is necessary to have a plot and it's necessary to have characters act in believable ways. And you know, often when I get close to the end of the book, it is a really hairy time. You know, like it took me forever to end grown-ups. It didn't help that my dad died just around the time I was supposed to be finishing the book. And I was just paralyzed. You know, my head just wouldn't work. But it served me well this far. And this is, you know, and I I can imagine that there are writers listening to me who, who just are coming out in a cold sweat and thinking, how, how can you do something so risky? I don't know, I, you know, but by, the, but, but by the time I get there, you know, I, yeah, there is usually a kind of a, a very anxious time around the end. But if I wait it out, the end will usually present itself fairly quickly. It, is that kind of what you mean? Have, have I answered that adequately? Yes. Perfect. 
let's let's switch gears a bit. We've talked about your writing life, and we've talked about this book. Let's talk about your reading life, and we'll we'll start at the beginning. Tell me about some of the books that featured in your childhood. Yeah, my first great love was Enid Blyton. I was about six when I started reading her books, and I was just so in love. I was obsessed with those books. And you know them in Canada, I'm sure. They're English. They were written in the 30s. And uh, yeah, and it's funny because I'm Irish and the world that was being described in them, you know, of kind of posh, posh children going to boarding schools and having nannies and having, you know, kind of a life of privilege. Like none of that was familiar to me. And yet I just, I consumed them so much. And you know, looking back, I can see that like reading was my first drug of choice. Like I was a kind of a very anxious child and books were my comfort. They were my escape. They were my safe place. And apparently if children read at a fairly early age, some sort of blueprint is laid down in their brain so that they they have a kind of a, an intuitive understanding of narrative which serves them well if they if they want to write later in life so I had no idea that I was getting this apprenticeship but it was just lovely and I read them for several years and the library was my best friend there are so many yeah I mean hundreds like hundreds and then I think, you know, around the age of maybe 10, they started to lose their luster. And then I moved on to Agatha Christie. And again, you know, posh English, you know, from the olden days, as I would have thought. Again, I loved them. And then things went sort of weird. My family moved to, um, to a different town, um, different city. And I was around 12 and I wasn't I didn't have access to the kids library anymore and I had no idea about what to read any further I mean my feeling is that there weren't any young adult books then and um, the way there are now so I didn't have anything to read for a while you just sort of hit a wall and then you have to make this leap over into the adult books yeah. And I mean, I know there were books like maybe Judy Bloom, but like we quite literally did not get Judy Bloom in Ireland because when I was 12, it was 1977, you know, and censorship was still all the go here. You know, like, I mean, anything that touched on, you know, the sexuality of, of young women, it'd be like, no way would, you know, would, would I get the opportunity to read it? So my dad joined the Reader's Digest. And, you know, neither of my parents were really readers, um, but my dad was very big on sort of education and, and how would you call it, like bettering yourself. So all these diverse books used to arrive in the house, like uh, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote and um, Catch-22 and Gone with the Wind. And I read everything that came because because I was so hungry for books. And then I suppose Maeve Finchie was writing novels. And Jilly Cooper, I don't know if you know her, she's um, an English writer, that, and she wrote all these gorgeous books. You know, they were, I suppose, sort of like um, up-to-date Mills and Booms. They were just, they were just delicious. I loved them. And so, like, all through my teens, I would read whatever anyone told me to read, you know, and I had, you know, those earnest 16 year old boys who carry George Orwell racks in their pockets. Um, like there were them and there was James Joyce and. I may have known that person that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but it was great. Like it was really great to have people say, read this. It's great. Um, or read this. You might like it. And and I did. And so I was one of these very hit and miss readers in that like I have big gaps in my reading. You know, I just, I didn't have the opportunity that other people have to have a sort of a more formal reading regime drawn up by their teachers or their parents. But the one other thing that, that I should say is that my mother is an incredible oral storyteller and always was. And 
there was an awful lot of storytelling that went on in our house, in our home, in our, in our kitchen, you know, and every lunchtime, you know, I'd come home from school and, you know, this is like when I was like 15, 16, and there would be like a collection of random teenagers in my mother's kitchen and she would be talking to them and they'd be talking to her and, and there was always, how do you call it, a premium put on being a good anecdote teller in my family. And I think that I learned the art of storytelling that way, as well as from books. Uh, you know, my mother is still the funniest person I know. And she can make a fascinating story out of the dullest sequence of events. She just has that gift. So I feel in that way, you know, that there was. So as you're making that transition then from reader to writer, were there particular books or stories around you that made you go, that's what I want to do. This is, I, I would like, I'd like to be the one writing them as opposed to the one reading them. Yes. Yeah. I had read Heartburn by Nora Ephron, you know, a few years earlier. And I just loved that. I loved the conversational chatty way that she spoke directly to her reader. And the fact that she was, it was fairly thinly disguised autobiography. You know, that idea of that, like you could draw on your own life and that you could draw on your own experiences, no matter how mundane, that gave me a lot of freedom. And then there was another book I'd read called Fabulous Nobodies. She's an Australian writer called Lee Tullock. And it was out in maybe 1991, one of those sort of years. And it's about a young woman living in New York who is a complete fashionista. And it's a sort of a, not exactly a satire on what it's like to be young and obsessed with Chanel and living in New York and wanting to get into clubs. But again, it was, it was comic. Yeah, it was comic like the Nora Ephron book. And it was first person. And it was very chatty. And it took the reader straight into her interiority. And that was exactly what I wanted. And I think what I was also chiming with was my mother's autobiographical storytelling. It's that way of, you know, my mother always starts by saying, come here till I tell you. And that's exactly what I wanted my readers to feel, that I was saying, come over here, sit down, I've got something to tell you. Gossipy, chatty, confiding, and nothing held back slangy, conversational rather than, rather than language that, that put a barrier between the writer and the reader. I mean, it was intimacy. That's what it was. I was looking for intimacy with my reader. You are also a Mills and Boone fan. Yes. Yes. Now, I mean, I always feel like I have to apologize for this. You do not have to apologize. I used this. to read them. <laughs> Well, thank you. Right. I, I have a law degree. And when I, I mean, and, you know, college was, was tough. And every Saturday afternoon, I used to go to bed and I used to read. My mother used to bring home three Mills and Boons books every week from the library. And I would read maybe all three of them. And they were such a relief. You know, it's just so lovely to read something where kind of nothing bad really happens. And you know that everything is going to be okay in the end. And I hadn't read them for decades until my dad died at the end of 2018. And suddenly I craved them. And, you know, they helped me so much. I read book after book. I mean, the minute I finished reading one, I downloaded another, you know, and then I had several downloaded at once because I felt sort of panicky if I didn't have, you know, lots of them lined up. And they gave me such comfort. And again, after I finished writing Grown Ups, I had some time of just, my head belonged to me and I could just have fun. So, you know, I still have several waiting to be read and it sort of feels like, you know, those emergency things that are behind glass, you know, fire alarms or whatever. That's how I, how I feel about them. And, you know, they, I mean, I feel they have hugely improved from when I was, when I was younger. I mean, some of the writers are incredibly gifted with an elegant sentence. Yeah, there's one in particular, Lynn Graham. And I just, I read her and I, I study how she constructs her sentences. I, I think she has a really beautiful way of doing it. Yeah, I suppose snobbishness about books. It makes me sad because books are such 
a pleasure for me. They're such a comfort. I get so much from them. And it would really sadden me that people think, oh, you know, that wouldn't be for the likes of me because I, I'm an intellectual or, or worse, I wouldn't like to be seen reading this book because people would think less of me. Um, th- I mean, that's absolutely tragic. My last question for you today is if you could recommend a book that you feel is underappreciated to people, a book that you would like to shine a spotlight on, what book would that be? You get to be a bookseller for a moment instead of uh, instead of an author. It's Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo. It won the Booker Prize last year and she, she shared it with Margaret Ashwood for the Testaments and it kind of made me sad. I mean, Margaret Ashwood is such an icon. It made me sad, though, that, um, you know, the first black woman to win the Booker, you know, that she couldn't have the prize to herself. And I think, and I include myself in this, that people are often afraid of Booker winners. They think that they're going to be, you know, impenetrable or over earnest or whatever. Girl, woman, other is the most exuberant, fabulous fascinating, fun, involving, you know, it's a human interest collection of characters that like, it's so entertaining, it's moving, it's, it's insightful, it's eye-opening. I cannot tell you how much I loved it. And because we are going through this profound shift societally, it's finally got to number one in the London Sunday Times uh, paperback list uh, last Sunday. I mean, it has already been out for like, I don't know, three months in paperback. And she's the first black woman and woman of color to have topped that list. And it is so well deserved. I just feel so excited for everybody who's going to read this book now because the reading pleasure they get would be just off the scale. I, you know, I really feel people are just going to be swallowed up with delight, uh, you know, the world that she takes us into. So that is the book that I would absolutely urge people to go out and buy and read. I cannot wait. Marion Keys, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a delight. It has been such a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so, so much for having me. And thank you so much to Kobo for having me. I'm really grateful. I have been speaking with Marion Keys about her latest book, Grown Ups. It and the other books we have mentioned here, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at kobo.com conversation. There are so many good authors there. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. It helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamblin, usually in the Kobo studios in Liberty Village, Toronto, Canada, but now distributed in bedrooms and living rooms across the country. Thank you for listening.